Well, good morning. Good morning. It's really exciting to see so many folks here, especially after Thanksgiving. When I first, um, when I first signed up to preach after Thanksgiving, I thought this would be easy peasy because there'll be about seven people there, so no pressure. And then, you know, we've got scripture read by a man holding a baby. We've got a, a, a what's that thing? An accordion up here. Um, so you know, it's high pressure. It's high pressure now. It's a, these are tough acts to follow, but, um, and you're asking, is the accordion, is it retro? Is it forward thinking? Is it ironic? Yes. It's awesome. That's what it is. So thank you, Mike, for playing that. Um, well, it, everybody looks well fed. Everybody looks well rested after Thanksgiving, and, and we are too. My family was blessed to share dinner with some other Trinity families in town. This year, and that was a real gift. <clears throat> um, it was a gift in no small part because we didn't have to do any dishes. We went to somebody else's house. We took our sort of, you know, traveling circus on the road. I guess that's how traveling circuses go. Um, we took our circus on the road, went to somebody else's house, and it was great. And um, I want to mention that if anyone is already looking to 2018, I'll be taking pre-invitations to Thanksgiving after the service, so you can come and find me. But, you know, being with friends was great, but um, neither I nor my wife Stephanie is from Nashville originally, so it meant that we didn't get to see our extended family. You know, and sometimes that's okay. And generally, I, I don't play favorites, but there was one family member in particular that I wanted to see this year more than any of the others. There was a, there was a favorite um, this year, and that's because one of my brothers and his wife just welcomed their first child this past week. Um, And we were really looking forward to meeting the new baby. And so um, there'll be time for that. There'll be time for that. But they named him Judah. And that's a great name. It's a name that's rich with its own story. And there's several Judahs in the Bible. There's there's even a Judith. Um, And the name means praise. My favorite instance of a biblical Judah comes from the opening book of the Bible, Genesis. In that book, Jacob's wife, Leah, was pregnant. And the the first thing that you need to know about Leah is that she was not Jacob's first choice for a wife. In in fact, he was was actually in love with her younger sister, Rachel. But in in an interesting turn of events, he ends up marrying uh, Leah. Well, Leah thought that if she bore him a son, that she would come into Jacob's favor. And so over time, she did in fact give birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. And here's what she said when when he was born. She says, she named him Reuben, quote, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. But the sad thing was nothing really changed in her relationship with Jacob. She had another son, and she named the second son Simeon. When Simeon was born, Leah said, Ah, now's the time. Because the Lord heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. But her predicament, it actually remained unchanged. A third son was born. She named the third son Levi and said, Now, this time, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And you can probably see the pattern now. Apparently, nothing changed in her relationship with her husband, Jacob. 
at least not, not simply because another son was born. So you probably heard this saying, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, Leah felt fooled three times, but that was going to be it. When she conceived again and she bore a fourth son, this time she didn't look to Jacob for affirmation. This time, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. It's a name that literally means let God be praised. Judah, it's essentially like the name form of the word hallelujah. And so when I got the message from my brother that a nephew had been born um, earlier than expected, but still healthy, one of my first thoughts was hallelujah. We should give praise. You know, we should give praise to God for this baby and for the delivery and his name was fitting. And so, you know, I'm a little bit sad that we haven't gotten to see Judah yet, but soon enough. And it's an amazing thing. And we even saw just up here today, I was uh, teasing about it a little bit, but we saw how, how sweet and cute and innocent they are, right? New parents. New parents, I mean. <laughs> they are so happy to just join the parent club. Those first 12 hours, I'm getting, and I was like this too, so I don't, I, I don't just put this on, on you if you're a new parent, but those first 12 hours, I'm getting nonstop text messages because my brother, you know, he snaps a picture of Judah doing something really original, like laying there with his eyes closed. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, look, he's making a fist. Yeah. Okay, great. And then everybody in my family has to chime in with the appropriate emoji for the next hour. This continues, you know, your phone is vibrating. And just when, uh, just when it slows down, here comes the next picture. And now it's a close-up of a baby in a hospital beanie, you know, again, really original. And I see it, and my first thought was, that's fake news. Uh, that, could have been, that could be anybody's kid. I want to see ID, okay? I haven't met this kid yet. But I think... I think babies have this way of evoking praise from us, right, from many of us anyhow. We have a lot of parents and medical professionals at Trinity. And I think one of the reasons that we have this praise response is because we know just how fragile the gestation and the childbirth process is. You know, there's many things that can go, that can go awry, during the process, and our ability to control it is remarkably limited. So when a child comes into our world, it's appropriate to say, praise God, because we know that the work was ultimately accomplished by him. There's very little that we could do to influence this stuff. And I think there's another component to praise, and that's trust. New parents are quick to praise because they believe that life is going to be better with the addition of this child. Okay. Did you catch that? This new person who's going to deprive you of sleep, cost you tons of money, mostly yell at you. <laughs> this is just the first week, by the way, new parents. This new person, new parents still trust that everything is going to be just fine. And trust and praise are linked because in order to praise something, we have to trust that it will be beneficial, right? that it's going to make good on its promises. So in another minute, we're going to turn to the text, the text for this morning. It's Psalm 146. And this psalm is considered a praise psalm, but the concept of trust 
plays really prominently in this passage. And so the theme that we'll be exploring today is how we can have a lifetime of praise that is built on trust in the Lord. If you think about Sunday as the day when we typically come together in a formal time of praise and worship, I think it's noteworthy that, that different calendars place Sunday at a different uh, point in the week. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this. On my Google calendar, uh, Sunday is the first day of the week. But in Outlook, it's actually the last day of the week. And you can, you can change settings uh, if that's helpful to you. Um, I mention that because according to this psalm, praise should be both. It should bookend our week. It should bookend our lives. So let's, let's turn now to Psalm 146. If you don't have a Bible there, some down in the center aisle uh, here, and we'd love for you to keep it as your own, um, take it as a gift from us. We, we believe that the Bible is God's word, and it's such a valuable thing to be able to access his word regularly. So uh, please stand with me as, as we read, as I read Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So I'm not going to do any like serious Bible trivia or anything, but in the event that you find yourself on a game show, and here's some facts that you might like to know about Psalms, about the Psalms. And we've been studying Psalms for the past few months, if, you're, uh, if this is your first week with us. There are 150 chapters or individual psalms in this book. It's by far the longest book in the Bible. It's over uh, 2,400 verses in the book of Psalms. And the psalmist, or the author of many of these chapters, is, is thought to be the great Jewish King David. Right? And in 150 chapters, you can cover nearly every topic imaginable. There are psalms or poems in which the writer cries out to God for help. We call these psalms of lament. There are a number of psalms that cover the topic of wisdom and and wise living. There are many in which the author gives thanks. A close reading of the psalms has witnessed the author at times fearing for his life, at other times triumphant. At times he's giving thanks for family and for a loved one. At other times he's lamenting the loss of life and famine and oppression. During our series, we grouped the psalms by topic. But if you took them in order from the first to the last, the final grouping of five psalms 
comprise some of what are known as praise psalms. And this psalm, it it doesn't bury the lead. Right out the gate, the writer gives us the main instruction. Verse 1, praise the Lord. And that's where we'll start too, but then we'll shift to the warning that's given in verses 3 and 4 about not placing trust in men. We'll finish by going through some of the reasons that we know that God alone is trustworthy and praiseworthy. So if you're making an outline, since I didn't submit it early, uh, here's what your outline might look like. We're going to talk about the main instruction, praise the Lord. And then we're going to contrast that with a warning not to put faith in men or women. And we finish with the point that God alone is trustworthy and praiseworthy. That's where we're headed. So turn again to the first two verses of the psalm. One of the things that stands out to me is that the author isn't merely giving instructions to an audience, right? He's, he's standing in the mirror and he's reminding himself, he's looking at himself saying, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Right? It's, a, it's a reminder. Another word that I'll sometimes use today when talking about uh, this praise and, and, and how praise manifests is worship. You might think about worship as the actions and the attitudes that we have when we praise God for his goodness. Anyway, the psalmist says, praise the Lord, O my soul. It's a reminder that praise is personal. Genuine praise and worship is something that's internalized. Yes, when we come together in a group like this, you look around, you see friends and and family engaged in other forms of worship. But if we aren't personally praising, then it might mean that we're just along for the entertainment of it. Praise is personal. The psalmist also addresses the audience about praise. So take a a look at the very end of the psalm in, in verse 10. He's talking to Zion. That's another name for all of God's people. And once again, he tells them to praise the Lord. And I think it's kind of amazing that after all that occurred during the times in which the Psalms were written, war and peace, feast and famine, life and brutal death, the writer closes with a resounding spirit of praise for God. He doesn't shade over the fact that life has been hard, but nevertheless, he closes in praise. And he doesn't say just give praise when possible or convenient or even at specific times. He says that he will praise as long as he lives. That's an amazing claim. Committing to something for that long can't happen if you don't believe in the thing that you're aligning with. It's precisely why I think there's a very practical reason for this psalm. I think the writer knew that humans are prone to doubt. We're prone to lose interest. We're prone to wander, even when we're, we're engaged in doing something that we like. Right? How many unused apps are on your phone? Because in the moment, that thing seemed like a great idea. Right? That's why apps want to send you constant reminders so that you'll engage with them. Because we're so susceptible to pouring our attention into something else. Above all, we're quick to forget what God has done for us. And we need constant reminders to praise him. But remember back before we read today's text, I said that that praise and trust are linked. And in order to praise something, we have to trust that it will be beneficial, that it will make good on its claims. 
And so we're going to come back to how we know that the Lord makes good on his promises. But for now, let's turn to some of the other places where we often put our trust. So the first point was that we should trust the Lord as long as we live. The next point is this warning not to put faith in men or women. Well, it might not surprise you to hear that global trust is at an all-time low. There's this uh, consulting company, it's called Edelman. And Edelman puts out a survey on trust that's come out for the last 17 years. And uh, this year's Edelman report says that there is a global trust implosion. Strong words. This this report surveys something like 20,000 plus people around the world. And the numbers show low points for our trust in all types of things. Uh, Our trust in businesses and CEOs, our trust in government and the media. Verse 3 of Psalm 146 warns, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So if, if you were attending Trinity earlier in the year, you know we spent a good deal of time reading through the book of Judges. Back then, the people of Israel gave themselves over to following a leader, a judge, only to have their their hearts broken and their dreams dashed time and time again. You know, they had to be reminded that the one true king was in heaven, that his throne is in heaven. I'd like to believe that the global trust implosion means that a lot of people were downloading Trinity sermons from our website. And, you know, they really internalized those messages. But uh, I'm more pessimistic. Unfortunately, I think I think the state of leadership in our country and abroad is so pathetic that people are opting out. It seems like every day there's another allegation of fake news. It's harder than ever to know who to trust. Researcher Rachel Botsman says, there are usually two components to whether we put our trust in someone or something. First is competence. This is, you know, skills, knowledge, reliability. <clears throat> the second is character, integrity, motives, intention. And that, that framework resonated with me, anyway. The, the problem is that we often have to balance these components when making a decision about who or what to trust. For instance, um, you guys remember the Volkswagen scandal from a few years ago? If you drive a Volkswagen, I want to say Congratulations. And also, I'm sorry. Because, you know, on the one hand, they make very solid cars. Very solid. So sophisticated, in fact, that they fooled emissions audits for years. That takes serious competence and expertise. On the other hand, this is a company that will purposely trick you for years. Okay? Do not trust them. If Volkswagen is a person, you do not want to let them house it for you, okay? They will come over and, like, eat up all your cereal and put the box back in the pantry and say nothing about it. Do not trust them. So maybe if the studies are to be believed, you know, you don't put this kind of unending trust in so-called princes. But, but I want to dig a little deeper. 
the psalmist warns not to trust in men because when they die, so do their plans. It all returns to the dust. If you were to do an investigation of your own life, would you find evidence that you trust in things as if they will last indefinitely? Like they'll last forever? Are you so concerned with saving money that you stockpile it with no plans for how you might do some good with it? Are you pursuing a career or a degree with the expectation that once you've reached the finish line, everything's just going to fall right into place in your life? After the results of an election, are you elated? Are you distraught? If so, I challenge you that you might be putting your trust in something that can't last forever. For the, for the children worshiping with us this morning, are there friends or other people in your life whose words you value more than God's? Those friends won't last forever. Even if they could, they aren't perfect. And isn't it a strange thing that we're more likely to believe strangers on the internet than the God of the universe? Adults, are there people in your world that you've given celebrity status to? You take their advice as as gospel, whether it's personal or professional. We might be past the point of believing everything that politicians say, but what about our favorite sports commentators? Or style bloggers? Or tech gurus? Or religious icons? Even the money in my pocket says, in God we trust, but I don't know if I can really trust, trust to outperform the market. So I might just let the collection basket pass by empty one more time. Often, I think the prince that we trust is the one in the mirror. We can claim to have faith in God, but when push comes to shove, we plan for the future as if he didn't exist. If trusting in something reminds us to have a confident kind of relationship with the unknown, then there is nothing in this world that's worthy of that attitude. Nothing except the object of this psalm, the Lord himself. So at the Edelman report that I referenced is to be believed, people today are putting less trust in institutions as compared to previous generations. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're placing our hopes in God. So let's turn to the final point. The fact that God alone is trustworthy and that he's praiseworthy. One commentary I read noted that human leaders cannot really help in the long run, so it's better to put our confidence in God. And and I actually felt like that is selling God short. It's not just that God is marginally better than humans, because frankly, that's a low bar. He's the only one who can supply our needs. The psalmist uses verses 5 through 10 to affirm the fact that God is trustworthy. There's this, this phrase that, I, that I've heard and that I like and, and, and came to mind as I was preparing for this sermon. Was, uh, during the Cold War, when the United States and the Soviet Union were supposed to be decreasing uh, their quantity of nuclear weapons, 
President Ronald Reagan wanted to show our willingness to work with the Soviets, but he also remained skeptical. So when asked about his approach, he would, he would say often that we should trust, but verify. Right? And so that's what we're going to do now. That's what the psalmist kind of is leading us to do. Trust, but verify. Thankfully, just based on these few verses, we find several reasons that direct us to trusting in the Lord. First, and I'm looking here at, at verse 6. He is the creator of heaven and earth and the sea. That's some of that kind of biblical language that I think is easy to gloss over. But it's, but it's a pretty big deal. I mean, let's be honest. He's the creator of heaven and earth and the sea. What did you do this week? Right? Me and Stephanie, we like, bought and sold things on Craigslist. Meanwhile, in the same amount of time, God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's within them. So, yeah, he checks the competence box. Right? The second part of that verse, though, is perhaps even more important. He keeps the faith forever. And this reminds me of, uh, there's a song, He is Good, and I will spare you um, trying to sing it or hum it or anything since I don't have any accompaniment at the moment. But the, the words, he is good, he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Yes, he is good, but even you and I can be good at least for a moment. But we can't sustain that forever. When the psalmist says that he will praise the Lord for his whole life, that can only happen because the Lord is trustworthy and praiseworthy for all time. He made promises to his people over time, and the author of this psalm would have known that those promises had come to fruition. Take, for instance, the promise to give his people their own land. Despite the people's often lack of faith, God made good on that promise. A third reason to put trust in the Lord, you find in verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed, and he sets the prisoners free. Again, even at the time of this writing, there would have been well-known instances of God bringing his people out from under one oppressive regime or another. One of the best-known is getting the Jews out of Egypt. But over the next few centuries, there are many other examples of his chosen people finding themselves subject to another nation only to be rescued by divine intervention. The last note about trustworthiness that I'll mention here is that he provides for his people. The psalm says, he gives food to the hungry and sight to the blind. He watches over some of the groups that are the most vulnerable, widows and immigrants and refugees. When the Israelites were wandering the desert after escaping Egypt, they had no food. God sustained them daily for nearly 40 years. And the part about watching over sojourners, uh, that, that were those would have been immigrants or refugees, one of the most vulnerable people, especially at the time, but as we heard from Jim a moment ago, still vulnerable today. If David is the author of this psalm, he would have known. He would have known about that 
that group of people with some specificity. His great-grandmother, Ruth, was just such a person. She was a stranger in a foreign land, but she was watched over, and not just watched over, but chosen by God to bless all people. It's a story of redemption for a group of people who were maybe the most vulnerable around. We could parse out these verses even further, but the point I want you to get is that God has proven himself again and again. He is the ultimate creator of all things. He's faithful to his people forever. He brings justice for the oppressed and he provides for the vulnerable. One scholar I read said that praise and worship of God is possible because of God's prior revelation. Meaning, he's already already revealed himself to us so that we know of his goodness. That was certainly the case for the author of these verses, and it's even more true for us today. This psalm, I think, not only reminds us of what God has done, but what God is doing and what he's going to continue to do. So the descriptions of God in the verses are reminders of what he's done, namely for the people of Israel or Zion in, the, in Old Testament times. And so I think it's a reasonable thing to ask, well, what's the import for us today? Is it just as true for us today? And one of the amazing things about, uh, about God's plan is that with the ability of hindsight, anyhow, we can see how he was working all things according to his purpose. So check out verse 3 again. That's where we were warned not to trust in princes, in the sons of man, in whom there is no salvation. Those descriptors are exactly opposite of how Jesus is described. In Revelation, Jesus isn't called a prince. He's called the king of kings. He isn't a son of man. In fact, here's how the book of Mark opens. Chapter 1, verse 1, right out the gate. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is no son of man. During his ministry years, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and there's rumors flying around about who he is and uh, who he might be. Jesus asks his friend, Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? This guy, who would go on to found churches and become one of the most important figures in early Christianity, says, you? (laughs) You're the Christ, the son of the living God. This is no son of man that we're talking about. This is the guy. This is the anointed one. This is about to be the reason for the season that we enter into. Bringing salvation to all who come. And if you have doubts, if you have a healthy skepticism, then Jesus has a message for that too. There's a passage in the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew. It's soon after Jesus has formed his group of 12 apostles. And John the Baptist is imprisoned, and so he sends some, uh, some of his associates to meet with Jesus. And essentially they ask, hey, are you the Savior that we've been waiting for, or should we keep looking? It's a little like where we were 20 minutes ago, wondering whether, whether God is trustworthy. And the psalm recounts all the things that God has done. Well, listen to how Jesus answers that question. He says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. 
and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Generations after Psalm 146 was written, we find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we have evidence of Jesus healing the blind and feeding the hungry, lifting up those who were bowed down and befriending those who were the most vulnerable. The key thing about Jesus doing that work is that the significance is even greater than than just affirming God's trustworthiness. don't, Don't miss this part. Paul's letter to the Romans, it tells us that for those of us who are in Christ, the law of the Spirit has set you free. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That by sending his own Son, God fulfilled the law and completely shifted the paradigm. By linking ourselves with the Son of God rather than sons of man, we also will be raised from death to new life with Christ. And there's no one else but God to praise for all of this. Because this isn't work that we could have done by ourselves. I read that trust involves the delicate juxtaposition of people's loftiest hopes and aspirations with their deepest worries and fears. I'll say that again. Trust involves this, this juxtaposition of people's loftiest hopes and aspirations with their deepest worries and fears. Who else but God could meet both sides of that equation? Only in God is there someone who not only loves us perfectly, but has the power to act on it. Only God could have sent Jesus for our benefit so that these fragile bodies might be raised to new life and unity with him for all time. Earlier, I said we were looking to place trust in something that would be beneficial, that would make good on its promises. Well, God said he would make a way to bless all people of the earth. And in Jesus, he did just that. Knowing this, of course our response should be to give praise. No one is more deserving of our trust than God. He's competent, and the Bible says he is love. How's that for character? More importantly, he marshaled all that power, all that goodness, all that love to bring each one of us closer to himself. Nothing on earth has that kind of track record. There's one or two verses in this psalm today that I didn't spend much time on. Verse 8 talks about how God loves the righteous, but in verse 9, he brings the wicked to ruin. You might think of this psalm as a reminder to praise, and also I think it's a call to make a decision. And I'll close with this. The decision is this. In light of the evidence, will you choose the path of the righteous person or the wicked person? Will you choose to follow the prince of peace or prince of man? The psalmist made his choice. The psalmist made his choice and he closes the longest book of the Bible worshiping God, the God of the people of Judah, the God of Jacob. He shouts out a resounding hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Pray with me.
God, help us remember your faithfulness in our times of vulnerability. We know that you are the creator of all things, the only one who has kept his promises throughout time. We thank you for keeping your promise to bless all people by reconciling us to yourself through your son, Jesus. Keep us from the temptation of placing our trust in the things of this earth. Help us to look to you as our only real hope. May our lives evidence our thankfulness for the gifts you've given us, never ceasing to praise you for your goodness and mercy. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.